Welcome to ID the Future, a podcast about intelligent design and evolution. Greetings, I'm Andrew McDermott. Today I'm happy to welcome back Michael Ashleman, Professor of Anglophone Culture at the University of Italian Switzerland, Lugano, and Professor Emeritus of Education at Boston University. This is part two of our discussion of Ashleman's book, The Restoration of Man, C.S. Lewis and the Continuing Case Against Scientism published by Discovery Institute Press. It's a newly revised and updated edition of Ashleman's celebrated study of Lewis and scientism, originally published in 1983. Discovery Institute co-founder and senior fellow George Gilder wrote a foreword to the 1998 edition of the book. As the digital age arrived, he cautioned against the perils of scientism. With the hierarchies of mind and matter upended, Right reason gives way to inductive fact-mongering on the moral flatlands of the World Wide Web. Giving up on mere common sense, Homo sapiens readily defers to the higher authority of Homo science, only to degenerate almost immediately to Homo sentience, summed up less by what he thinks than by what he feels. Michael, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Andrew. In the first part of our conversation, you helped us understand why C.S. Lewis tackled scientism in his books and why he remains enduringly popular still today. Can you mention a few things about that? And you might remind listeners what scientism is defined as. Yes, sure. Happily, scientism is a misuse of the scientific method and of scientific approaches and their application to phenomena over which they have no validity or no valid insight. So it's, it's a form of reductionism, reducing things um, to their only or merely physical components, matter, space, time, mass, or even energy. Scientific materialism would be another way of putting it. It's often called physicalism or even epiphenomenalism. And my book is a kind of a history showing it's been a chief factor in much of what's gone wrong in the modern world in the last 200 years, but especially in the period since 1914. And Lewis is perhaps its most effective critic in the sense of reaching a large audience. And on that point, Andrew, you and I were discussing this in the first installment. I I wanted to make one more point about his popularity. I think very occasionally in the history of literature, a writer intuitively taps into the core of human concerns and articulates them intelligibly and memorably. Dante did this, the great Italian poet. Um, Shakespeare certainly did it for English-speaking people. Charles Dickens did it. Dostoevsky did it not only for the Russians, but in translation. These are writers who tap into something with an intuitive grasp of things that we all think sometimes, but we rarely articulate clearly or rarely see conceptually with the clarity we would like. They always seem to be just beyond the reach of our fingertips. And Lewis is one of these people. Lewis is one of these people who who articulated things that we, all of us, in as much as we're civilized and decent beings, often think about and that we wish we could formulate. And he does this. That's a great point. Well, although your book, uh, The Restoration of Man, has C.S. Lewis as its center, he's by no means the only thinker that you survey as you build your case. Uh, If you had to quickly list off eight or ten of the more important figures you examine in the book, who would they be? And then we can zoom into a few. Okay, yes, certainly. I'm very pleased that that a little later this autumn, the book's coming out in French. 
from a Paris publisher. And it concerns also several French figures. So the figures I would list would be essentially English and French figures. Francois Rabelais in the 16th century, Jonathan Swift, the greatest of all our English language satirists at the end of the 17th and in the 18th century, Blaise Pascal, the great French mathematician and philosopher a little earlier than Swift, writing in 1670, 1680s, Samuel Johnson in the 18th century, Thomas Carlyle in the early 19th and through to the Victorian period around 1880, John Henry Newman, about to be made a saint in the Roman Catholic Church this month, G.K. Chesterton died as recently as 1935. And then the last two that I would mention, just from a number of people I discuss, the great French physicist Pierre Duhem, D-U-H-E-M, Duhem, who died in the middle of World War I in 1916, professor in Bordeaux. And then the Hungarian-American Benedictine monk and, and scholar Stanley L. Yaki, J-A-K-I who died about 10 years ago. I think that that this group of people, some of them very well known in France, Rabelais and Pascal are tremendously well known. In the English-speaking world, Swift and Carlyle are tremendously well known. The others rather, and and so is Samuel Johnson, the others rather less well known. This would be a a group that I, I, I think attention would profitably focus on. Yeah, well, that's such a great array of thinkers, and I'm so glad that you you have the skills to combine all their thoughts on this topic into a very uh, brief book by the likes of it. So, well, let's zoom in a little more here, narrow down to four figures just to help us understand a bit closer. We'll start with a philosopher, one that you scrutinize in the book and who took on scientism. I think it's good to start with Blaise Pascal who is a 17th century French thinker, absolutely fundamental to French civilization and culture, widely and well-known in the English-speaking world, also through translation, of course, probably more popular with religious people, both Protestant and Catholic, than with people writing about philosophy nowadays, even though his philosophical writings are enormously profound. Pascal was a mathematician, uh, a scientific genius who performed uh, extraordinary experiments, probably invented the first computer, and organized the arrangement of the original Paris bus system. This is buses when they were still using horses and carriages, but a very brilliant man. But he made a distinction between two different kinds or or operations of reason. One of them he called the geometrical spirit, or the mathematical spirit, l'esprit géométrique en français, in French. And that's the one that we normally use for investigation of each separate discipline, whether it's biology or chemistry or, to some extent, even logic. The geometric spirit, which is relentlessly rational, follows from the laws of logic, logic, and uh, it has as its criteria things such as um, the principle of non-contradiction. But Pascal, who was very good at that, he was himself a great mathematician and an inventor, and an explorer, and is widely recognized as such in the Francophone world, Pascal said that there was a more important kind of intelligence. And and he called that l'esprit de finesse, the subtle mind, or the mind that employs intuition. And he said each of us is in need of a kind of common sense, the French called le bon sens, the good sense, that integrates separate specialized bodies of knowledge into an overarching approach to life. 
each of us is responsible being and has a moral sense of responsibility for our own actions and thoughts and, and deeds. And Pascal said that real greatness in philosophy was to have some of this esprit de finesse, and he had it himself. So he was perhaps the most powerful figure in either France or England in the 17th century to critique the new Enlightenment rationalism that was emergent mm. in his contemporary Descartes, for whom he had considerable respect. And Descartes was himself a very devout Catholic, Orthodox Christian. But Pascal said, ultimately, that kind of logic is not the most important thing in life. You need the intuitive sense of the whole, and each of us does in his life. And that led Pascal to a critique of the scientific method itself and to the partial nature of it, to its inevitable exclusions, and, and to pointing out that matter, space, time, mass, and energy can tell us nothing about validity, truth, obligation, love, justice. Those are non-quantifiable realities, and yet they are presuppositions of the scientific method or any other rational use of the mind. So I would, I would say Pascal, whose great book of, of, of thoughts, which he hoped to put into a great treatise, he never got to make the great treatise, but it's called the Pensée, the Thoughts. Um, it's often been translated in English. A, a relatively recent translation of it from the early part of the 20th century bears a very famous introduction by T.S. Eliot, who admired him enormously. Interesting. Well, like the world wars of the 20th century, this is a multi-front struggle against the idolatry that was known as scientism. It's also fought on the theological front. If you had to pick one theologian from the last 150 years or so, who would it be? Boy, that's a good question. And uh, I, I'm, I'm tempted to say uh, John Henry Newman, who's about to be made a, a saint by the Catholic Church, because he was a great theologian and a great philosopher. But I'd, I'd rather draw attention to somebody whose who's work has, I think, been neglected and who had a much greater command than Newman could possibly have of science itself. And that's the man I mentioned a moment ago, Stanley L. Yaki, who died about 10 years ago, I think 2009, J-A-K-I. He was a Hungarian Benedictine who spent most of his life in the United States. He was a Francophone. Uh, he was a very good linguist. And he started out as a as a theologian, and throughout his life, he continued to be a theologian. He taught out at a college in the in the Pittsburgh area, but he had a terrible health problem, and he lost his voice. And it, for a while, led him to a kind of despair until his abbot out at the monastery there at, at uh, St. Vincent of Latrobe, Pennsylvania, he said, his abbot said, you know, Stanley, you've always loved physics, and you always wished you could have studied it. He said, now that you have had trouble, you've lost your voice, why don't you go off and take a PhD in physics? And you won't have to talk much, but you can write. Well, that's what he did. He took a PhD in physics at Fordham University under a Nobel laureate, an Austrian Catholic emigre named Victor Hess, and subsequently wrote about 40 books about physics and about modern sciences. They make up an immense volume of the most important material about the history and philosophy of science, and they've been widely recognized uh, among scholars as such. But he was always also a theologian, and he, he was in, in service of the Christian tradition. And I think his, his systematic critique of scientism in a series of, of really magnificently brilliant books, including books published, by the way, Andrew, by the Scottish Academic Press, because he gave the Gifford Lectures in Edinburgh on, huh. on two different occasions. And some of his books are published by 
um, the Scottish Academic Press, and, and, and I think some are published by University of Edinburgh Press. And they're magnificent books. And one of the things that, that makes his theology so powerfully interesting is that it is informed on the character and the precise nature of the history of science since, since the Middle Ages, and particularly on the intricacies of modern physics. He, his, his groundbreaking book was on the implications of, of Einstein's theories published by the University of Chicago Press back in the 1950s, and subsequently has written this, this immense uh, and distinguished body of work. It is in the interest of dominant figures in the fields of history and philosophy of science to minimize his influence by not referring to it. <laughs> and I think that's because they don't like the theological implication, even though Big Bang cosmology, of course, is, has, has, has let God back into the room. Uh, because you know where did all this uh, where did the whole world come from if it suddenly began you know from nothing as far as we we know how did it begin from nothing and and yaki has kept alive a theological tradition but also given to it the vividness that comes and can only come from the authority of someone with a phd in physics as well as a phd in theology so uh stanley l yaki uh, i think very, very badly neglected. I was very pleased to see there were very good obituaries on him when he died, both in the New York Times and the Boston Globe. But by and large, I, I, I know that historians and philosophers of science do not like to refer to his work because of its theological implications and its explicit theological loyalty. So he was able to bring together science and theology in a way that uh, was masterful and memorable. Absolutely. And also very much appreciated by by some of the Scots theologians, like like Thomas Torrance up at the University of Edinburgh, uh, who himself, okay. uh, Torrance himself, a Presbyterian, Church of Scotland theologian, had made very distinguished progress in trying to understand these things, but he saw in the work of Yaki, and, and also the work of another Hungarian, Michael Polanyi, he, he saw in their work an extraordinary extension of theological insight into the world of the natural sciences, which Torrance himself as a trained theologian was nevertheless not really capable of penetrating because he didn't have a PhD in physics. Well, your book points out that it wasn't just scientists who objected to the rise of scientism. Many philosophers, poets, satirists, and other writers criticized scientism in their work, or they gave their audience a hopeful alternative. Can you very briefly, at the end of our episode here, pick out a literary artist to highlight for us? Yeah, I think Jonathan Swift is, is the most useful in the English language in this yeah. regard. Gulliver's Travels, especially book three, is, is really a, a brilliant satire on, on the, the illusions of physicalism or scientific reductionism. It's hilarious, but it's also very profound. There's, there's a good recent edition of it with wonderful notes uh, published by uh, Oxford University Press in one of the world's classics, uh, edited by Claude Rawson, with some wonderful notes. I think book three of Gulliver's Travels, which was published in 1726, which is the greatest satire in the English language, and is, by the way, not, not a book for children, <laughs> although, <laughs> although children's versions of it can be made because it's got big people and little people and talking horses and so on. And it was a great inspiration yeah. to C.S. Lewis, there's no question about it. Uh, Lewis is really a Swiftian. But I think I think Swift is a figure in this battle of the books. He wrote a satire called The Battle of the Books. It, it's a battle of the books. It's a, it's a battle as to which books should have preference or primacy or priority in understanding life. Do we understand life on the basis of books such as B.F. Skinner's uh, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, who says that freedom and dignity are illusions? Or do we understand the reality on the basis of 
of books such as John Henry Newman's The Idea of a University or Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. Gulliver's Travels is probably the, the most available of all the great critiques before the 20th century, of all the great satirical critiques of science. So, so I, I nominate John Swift, St. Jonathan. <laughs> well, Michael, thanks so much for your time unpacking this and for this excellent book. And in just a short time on this podcast, you've given us a lot of thinkers and a lot of books and um, bodies of thought to turn to. So, listeners, we have lots of homework here. Well, if you've enjoyed our chat about the restoration of man, C.S. Lewis and the continuing case against scientism, get yourself a copy on Amazon or via discoveryinstitutepress.com. And if you haven't listened to the first part of my conversation with Michael Ashleman, find it and plenty other episodes at idthefuture.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. For ID the Future, I am Andrew McDermott. Thanks for tuning in. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute. For more information, visit intelligentdesign.org and idthefuture.com.